Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents The Vela Salvation, Episode 3. Asala Siku hung out on the flight deck often. It was the only place she felt comfortable after everything that had happened. Beyond the loading docks, that was where things fell apart. It had been three months since the wormhole closed, since the evac. That's what they had started calling it, an evacuation. Leaving their original solar system centered around a dying sun. It was a sad fact that they'd been dealing with for the past century. The slow death of their star leached away all the warmth, planet by planet, until it was impossible for whole populations to survive. It had literally become a death trap. They had to escape it one way or another. So when that wormhole opened, it was a godsend. She had no other choice but to take her sister Dio and brave their way into the unknown. Wherever it was had to be better than where they were coming from. At least, that was what she had thought. Apparently, there were a lot of people who didn't agree with her. Some people actually wanted to stay right where they were in that cold coffin of a star system. She didn't quite get it. She was a seasoned soldier, but she knew when to bow out from a fight. If someone was definitely going to shoot her and had a really good chance of making that shot fatal, then Asala stepped away. She knew when the fight was lost. Still, being alive was better than keeping her pride. And that was exactly how she felt here, on the other side. At least she was still alive. Unlike her boss... Ekram. The poor sod was dead because of her. Shooting him was a mercy. A cracked helmet in the vacuum of space meant stretched hours of slow death. Still, sometimes when she closed her eyes, she saw the look on his face before his craft exploded. He wasn't angry or full of despair. He had just accepted it. That alone pissed her off because she had seen a lot of death in her time but it was still hard to watch a friend go, much less accept it. 
It wasn't often that a mercenary would give a damn about their employer. They were living cash grabs. Yet Ekram was the only person who had really respected her. Now who did she have left? Nico? No, not anymore. Not after she left them, without taking even a second to search for their signal in the chaotic battlefield they left behind at Camp Gala. During the frenzy, there was no time to multitask. There was only time to prioritize. In the very little time she had, she could only save one of them to bring through that quickly closing wormhole. And Asala had chosen Dio. The two of them were a broken pair, two halves of a cracked piece of pottery. Did you glue them back together, or did you throw them away? For Asala, it would never be the latter. Dio was all Asala had left, Asala's only hope. Respect was what determined your worth in this whole playing field of an existence. So she looked to Dio hoped that one day she would get it from her. It'd be a challenge, but Asala knew the satisfaction of hard work. And there was work yet ahead. When a large shipment of supplies had to be delivered to their new settlement below, Asala jumped at the opportunity to pilot it down from their base in orbit. But that wasn't all she was going down there for. Asala grabbed her utility bag and slung it over her shoulders. She looked out the observational windows at the twin suns burning vibrantly outside. They were in a new galaxy now, and they were living, breathing, and far from freezing to death. It was a fresh start. Their destiny brought them here to a healthy star system. It'd be several million years until these twin stars would extinguish. So much time. She was planning on making use of it. Sala made her way to the landing pods, where a few star jets were parked for maintenance. They were lucky that a carrier made it over during the evac. It was a giant metal whale of a thing, complete with laboratories, mess halls, training rooms, residence wings, and metabase. Not to mention, lots of firepower. The state-of-the-art carrier was from the Gandesian fleet, but she considered an enemy ship for a good part of her existence. But hey, beggars couldn't be choosers. She thought about how the Gandesian leader, General Sinrig, had one fewer carrier, and laughed. A small win, in a way. A group of deck techs passed her by, trying to steer clear. She made her way to her cruiser. It was a little dinged up from the evac, but put a tank of fuel in it and it would stay aloft. As for the burn marks scorched into the top layer of metal panels, well, Asala had never cared for appearances. Because of that, her vehicle stood out among the other small jets being housed in here. Gandesian soldiers were extremely superficial. Even galaxies away from Sinrig's command, their jets were tip-top polished, shined. Asala walked over to one of the deck techs servicing her cruiser. His movements were crisp and structured, just like his uniform and regulation haircut. 
I'm scheduled for departure in half an hour, she said. Only have a narrow opening before the storm hits ground camp. The deck tech stared at her blankly. A blink, and then a second later, another blink. Over here, someone called after her. Asala looked over at another tech standing over by her cargo. He wore the typical sharp black Andesian uniform, paired with an angular safety helmet strapped around his head. A screen with her inventory list was in his hand. That one's a heavy, he said as he scrolled through his data displays, his eyes barely looking up to glance at her. She had no idea what he meant, so she stared at him exactly like the first tech had stared at her. A heavy? A work, cyborg. They're only programmed to move things, not for chit-chat. Not much different from the lot of you. Her voice was sharp. It was enough for the tech to notice, finally tearing his eyes away from his screen. His gaze lingered on the Hypatian clan tattoo circling her eye, and she knew he had already made up his mind about her. I see the rumors are true. Asala grumbled, trying to rein in her temper and stop herself from snapping him into tiny little pieces. She had gained a reputation for being difficult, which was a good word for it. The problem was the stories. They had all originated from one person. Her sister was a private person, except when it came to Asala. Yeah, they are. You know what else is true? Asala asked. If I'm not in my jet in half an hour, I'm throwing you out of this carrier. The tech's face twitched at her warning. He waved over a line of heavies and pointed at the equipment boxes in his corner. They made their way to them in a very straight line and proceeded to load up their arms with her cargo one by one until the cargo bay of her cruiser was full. She eyed all the boxes, tightening the straps on some of them, making sure they were secure. The deck tech stood next to her in sharp silence. Say it, she said. Sinrig's flock were all the same, full of quiet judgment. That's a lot of cargo, the tech said. Looks like you're going to be on the ground for a while. That's the plan, Asala answered. She wasn't just delivering supplies. After three long months stuck in orbit, she was going down to the ground base to scope things out. She had heard the transmissions from the first wave of settlers who had gone down. For the most part, the group was largely comprised of refugees from Camp Gala, as well as a ragtag group of scientists that had managed to cross the jump with them. They were a brave lot to test the waters out first. Who knew what was down there? With no official missions on her docket, Asala figured this would be as good a time as any to find out. Once she was on the ground, Asala wouldn't be a person anymore. To all the people on this carrier, she'd be a speck on a map, a set of words relaying short messages from time to time. Her entire existence would be compressed into a data point. That was how divided it was between the two bases, orbit and ground. The names were pretty self-explanatory. Asala came up with that one. It was probably one of the few things she had contributed the whole time she had been here. And the weapons, the tech prodded. 
She tilted her head at the small arsenal she was hauling down to ground. Hand units, cannons, energy shields, a state-of-the-art industrial 3D printer, not to mention whatever portable surveillance and recon tech she could find. A soldier had to be the right mix of audacity and caution. Like you said, I'm gonna be on the ground for a while. I'm surprised you were cleared for all of this. Asala wasn't phased at all. Her sister would give her whatever was needed to get her off this carrier. As days went by, it was getting harder and harder to carve out an Asala-shaped place in Dio's life. You can check it again if you want, Asala said. The tech shook his head. It would be a wrong move to question Dio. Her sister, Dio, or Hana Avit Medeina, as she was now called by the Gandesians, was the most senior-ranking officer that had survived the evac, and, by default, she was the leader on orbit. Asala couldn't say it was the same for people on ground. Most of them were refugees from Camp Gala who had suffered a long history of forced labor and abuse by the Gandesian people. There was no reason for them to express any loyalties to Dio and her fleet. Asala pounded her fist down on a button along the jet's frame. The ramp groaned as it rose upwards, sealing everything inside for safe transport. Grabbing a helmet from the rack, she made her way to the doors of the main cabin. She stole a glance at the flight deck entrance, where more techs scurried in and out like ants, her eyes staring right past them for someone else. You're gonna miss your departure window, the tech interrupted and she was jolted back to the task at hand. Do me a favor, Asala said. What's that? Give Dayu this. Asala slipped a wrinkled piece of paper into his hands. And tomorrow, make her noodles. Tell her happy birthday. When she got in her ship, she knew that the soldier wouldn't fulfill her request. Gandesians didn't care about birthdays, the only significant date for them was their enlistment day. But Asala kept a number of important days tucked close to her heart. The cold morning decades ago, when her sister shoved a pile of books into her arms before they were separated. The sunny afternoon a decade later, when she was conscripted into President Ekram's unit and seen as valuable for the first time in her life. And this day. Not because she was leaving this place, but because this was the day she'd start paving the way to the future. Down there was a brand new world, a new home, a new destiny to be realized. She would build it piece by piece, and her sister would be by her side, smiling like she did during those childhood days when she'd just completed another one of her poems. It would be her and Dio. And she hoped to the gods that that was enough. As Asala settled into the pilot's seat, still bathed in the light of that glimmering future, she waited a moment for her sister to come and wish her well on her journey. She never did. Honoring 
remote island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hannah Avet Medeina stood on the captain's deck. It was a grand view of everything. The new planet with the twin suns orbiting in the distance and the transport ships that zipped back and forth in between. Hannah knew when everyone entered orbit and when everyone exited. She remembered the days after the evac, how joyous some people were to find themselves here in this strange new star system. By this point, that happy bunch had migrated down below while she and the rest of her fleet remained above, not to watch over this new planet, but to peer up into the universe and wait for a sign. Night after night, Hana scanned the infinite reaches, hoping that someday she'd see something familiar. The right constellation that could serve as an arrow back to where her family was. That was where she should be. At this particular moment, though, her eyes were cast downward, watching closely as a cruiser unlatched from port. The doors behind her swung open, and a deck tech made his way through. She turned on her heel to the sight of him saluting her. You called, Commander Hana? he asked. You oversaw Agent Asala's departure. Affirmative, Commander. I was assigned lead on Asala Siku's maintenance and inventory check. The tech's expression refrained from any surprise. No emotion. That was what a good soldier was trained to do. She had that skill down pat. Now that Agent Asala is gone, send for Professor Uzochi. It's time she and I had a talk. Uzochi's laboratory ship was airlocked at the far western end of their fleet. The defiant scientist would have stationed herself at the opposite side of orbit if they didn't all have to band together to ration the resources they had left. You'll be done, the tech said, finishing with a salute before turning away. He was almost at the doors when she found herself speaking. How was she? She asked, cool and unforgiving as the ocean spray off the cliffs of Vangar, while below the surface, she was a swirling riptide of everything. It was hard to name the emotions. Her military training conditioned her to ignore them most of the time. The tech paused, a small glimpse of surprise at the turn in conversation from business to personal. It wasn't a commander's usual mode of operation. Well, the tech began. She threatened to throw me out of the carrier if I kept her off schedule. Hana sighed. That was her sister, all right. A ball of reckless emotion. She had no idea how Asala had survived so long without completely burning up from it. What else? Is there an Officer Dio in our fleet? Hana clenched her jaw. Her sister had some nerve to use that name in public. It was a name that Hana left behind long ago. She never used it in front of her officers. No one knew it belonged to her. She said it's her birthday tomorrow, Commander. Hana steeled her gaze, trying not to let any cracks show. 
If that's all to report, you may go. The tech remained firm in his place. He reached for his chest pocket and pulled out a piece of paper. And this? Agent uh, Sala wanted to deliver it to her. Her eyes fell to the folded parchment, wishing to burn it into oblivion. But she held out her hand. I'll take it. The tech deposited the note onto her gloved palm, and she waved him off. Hana turned back to the observation windows. She looked down at the wrinkled piece of paper and unfolded it. The letters on the page were curved and connected, the language of Upper Crescent. Like her Hypatian-born name, she hadn't used these words in a long time. But these ones in particular, she didn't have to read. She already knew them by heart. I warm the cold snow with my hands, and it becomes water. Ice, mist, vapor, onward. No matter what state it is, I will feel you. Do you still write poetry, Dayo? It was one of the first questions that her sister had asked her once they were reunited. Hana clutched the piece of paper in her fist and stared out at her sister's ship, shimmering as it grew smaller and smaller in the distance. Asala was a minute late. One full minute, and the storm had already arrived. She stared at the angry storm clouds below her and slammed her palms against her console. The damned duck tick! Who was she kidding? It was her own damned fault for waiting idly before departure for a hopeful moment too long. Her jet had already entered the planet's atmosphere, and the onboard operating systems had switched the jet's propulsion over to gravity controls. Her hands darted forward, one punching off her auto-route, and the other taking hold of the steering grip. Not so far in the distance, she heard an almighty boom, and a single word escaped her throat, Crap. She, like everyone else in the universe, knew what came after thunder. A spark of purple lightning webbed past her, close, dangerously close, and more was on its way. Purpling sparks churned deep within the cloud cover. Getting hit by a bolt of lightning was not on her to-do list today. She scrolled through her menu screen, activating her force fields. Error. She tapped on the screen again. Error, error. That darned dick tick, she repeated. All right, then. She had no force fields, no way to simply cruise out of this. To dodge that tangle of lightning, she couldn't simply stay in place. Masala placed both hands on the grip, eyeing the patterns of the storm, that rhythm. Time to dance, she whispered as she pushed down on her steering grip, feeling the entire frame of the vehicle tip. The cargo, thankfully hidden from view by a partial metal barrier, lurched behind her. She did not want to leave this physical existence being crushed by two tons of freight. She nosed off. A flash crackled toward her, hitting the right wing of her jet like a whip. And just like that, it was discharged back into the atmosphere. 
the plane was skinned with a conductive metal, while inside, the wires were grounded, and any other mechanical vulnerability was layered with a metallic mesh to keep the lightning from frying everything inside. But she heard it. God damn, she heard it. It was still ringing in her ears when a north winder hit her. It was never the lightning Nasala was worried about. It was always the turbulence. The air current slammed her sideways. Her monitors flashed, and she glanced at the orientation of the ship. Gods be damned. She was upside down. Her entire body rattled from the impact as she pulled hard on the steering grip. She felt her stomach turn with her jet as it righted. But then it got pummeled again, and again. The high-pitched groan of metal echoed behind her, followed by the sound of something snapping. Shit, the cargo. Sala didn't have a chance to look back when a heavy equipment box tumbled through an opening in the barrier behind her and plummeted down the plankway. The corner of the box smashed right into her windshield. The glass was thick and tempered so it wouldn't break, but that didn't mean it wouldn't get damaged. The glass crackled, splintering so delicately upon its surface that Asala couldn't see a thing. And her exterior monitors, those were a waste of time too. All she could see on them were chaotic patches of gray spattered with water droplets, obscuring even more of the same. Her thoughts raced as she tried to troubleshoot this disaster, because it was a disaster. And she kept repeating that word over and over in her head until her thoughts were a storm in themselves. Then, all of a sudden, Dio's face flashed before her. The Dio from before. The one who used to smile at her when they played in the snowfields near their house. And she remembered why she needed to get down there. There was no way to turn back, not back to orbit. Not back to her old life in her old galaxy with her old friends who she'd never see again. They would never go back to what it was. Hypatia was gone. Nico was gone. But Dio, that shattered other half of her broken family, she was still here. Asala repeated a line from Dio's poem. Ice, mist, vapor, onward. Then she slapped her palm hard against her cheek. You've survived worse than this, Asala, she told herself. She was a battle hero, a fighter. She was a pain in the ass. And she would not be beaten by this storm. She grabbed the pistol at her side and aimed, firing her entire charge through the windshield. Glass fell away from the ship. She willed her fingers to curl more tightly around the steering grip, even though her arms were shaking with fatigue. She tilted her jet to dive, and as she went farther and farther down, the wind ripped into the cabin, roaring around her like an untamed beast. And Asala welcomed it. She laughed in its face because now she could see. Below the clouds, there it was. Ground. Hana locked herself in her quarters. She stood by the door and waited until the footsteps out in the hall subsided. It was only when it had been quiet for a full minute 
that she went to sit down. She fished out her dog tags from underneath her collar and took the chain from around her neck. That necklace was one of her most treasured possessions. Her thumb skimmed the metal surface of the tag, feeling the rise and fall of the lettering. Hana Avit Medeina. This chain had been attached to her for over 150 air battles. During every firefight, it suctioned itself to her skin from all the heat and sweat, often leaving a cylindrical imprint on her chest as if it was desperately trying to become part of her flesh. That was what it meant to be part of all this. The military, the fleet, this brotherhood. It consumed you every little bit, until there was no more you. But a lot of times, that was exactly what a person needed. She did. The military had taken her in when she had nothing. She was skin and bones, and ready for the ground to swallow her up. This tag had given her a new name and a new life. It had saved her. But there was also someone else who had saved her. She flipped the ID over and wriggled off the silicon wrapping that protected the back of the tag, exposing a micro-smart chip tacked on with 4E adhesive. If this dog tag was her treasure, then this was the diamond on top of the pile. She pried the chip carefully off the tag and inserted it into a nearby reader. A screen projected before her, displaying the chip's contents. There was only one file. She swiped her finger through the icon, and another projection appeared. A face materialized before her. It was her own, a little younger and far less wrinkled, dressed in her officer's outfit, immaculate as always. And right next to her, a woman with beautiful brown skin was caught in the middle of a laugh, a laugh so big that you could see all her teeth. Her name hung on Hannah's lips. Mia. Her love, her all. A good moment, captured in time forever. Hannah's heart grew heavy. She missed her wife. I'll see you again, she whispered. Promise. Her wife and her daughters had been left behind on the other side of that wormhole, and she was going to tear this God's damn universe apart to get back to them. A tinny knock rapped on her door. Hannah swiped the image away and quickly ejected the chip from the reader. The dog tag was back around her neck in no time. She stood up. A high-ranked officer should never receive a lower rank while seated. Standing reinforced a soldier's authority. It meant you were primed. It meant you were ready. She adjusted her uniform to be as rigid as her posture and turned to the door. Enter, she ordered. The door to her commander's quarters slid open, and a young officer appeared in the doorway. Their gaze was unsteady as they almost stumbled inside. She narrowed her eyes, studying them from head to toe. They had light brown skin and were of medium build, their hair, while freshly cut to the regulation one centimeter in length, was not styled in an officer's manner. Instead, it somehow managed to zigzag in several directions in a very unkempt fashion, 
a hard thing to do with hair that short. Hana wasn't sure if this was the young soldier's form of small rebellion or just their general lack of regard. What is it? Her tone was blunt and forceful, like a clubbed weapon. It made the officer flinch. Uzochi's team is on their way. Beads of perspiration began to percolate on their forehead. Wonderful. Even though the illustrious scientist's ship was connected to the Gandesian fleet, Uzochi made it clear she was not part of their military unit. After how Ganda treated the refugee colonies, it was no wonder Uzochi remained firm in her stance. Uzochi was Eratosi. She had seen that cruelty firsthand. So she made it very apparent that there would be no formal alliances between them. Yet sometimes, out in the great unknowns of space, an enemy became an ally very quickly. Hana wanted to take the opportunity to expand upon that notion. Tell mission services to send two officers to escort the professor back. But then she looked over this young soldier once again and rethought her order. Never mind. I'll tell them myself. Hana couldn't let this grunt mess it up. She was about to dismiss them when she noticed them staring at her, really staring at her. Her eyes, the sleek line of her nose, the way her lips were set in their usual grimace. She snorted as the realization hit her. This young soldier was in awe of her. Hana was used to it. She was a superior officer in Sinrig's elite team. Not to mention, she had already received the hearts of last during her previous tour around Quarizmi, cracking down on a dangerous regime of illegal glow dealers. She was a war hero. And to many soldiers, she was a role model. An aspiration for each new recruit. She might as well play the part. Morale was important. It created forward motion. It created hope. And hope was a glowing thing she would never forsake. Not now. Where did you start your tour, soldier? She asked. They cleared their throat. <clears throat> Back at the Battle of Gonda. That was the battle that brought them here? Hell of a first mission. And then her voice softened. Your family would be proud. I doubt it. But then again, I'll never know for sure. They laughed softly. It was a sorrowful laugh. The kind that didn't do a good job at hiding the pain. Hana knew perfectly well how that felt. When that wormhole closed, everyone that was important to them, their loved ones, their high command, was trapped on the other side. They were cut off from their roots. Some of the people who crossed through the wormhole did it by choice. Hana never got that chance. Perhaps this soldier before her was never given the opportunity either. Well, we are your family now, cadet, she said, offering them the same lifeline Sinrig had when she recruited her into the Gandesian forces. She glanced at the officer's dog tag hanging over the buttons of their shirt. She reached for their ID, reading the name engraved on the plating, Tariq Issa. And then she lay the tag gently against the cloth, 
Always keep this close to your heart. It will save you over and over again. You're not how I expected you to be, Tariq said. And how's that? Nice. Tariq's eyes warmed. I'm glad to finally meet you, Commander Hana. Tariq smiled at her, and their mournful eyes fired the spark of something new. Maybe it was hope. Hana prayed that it was. She took one last stern glance at that mess on top of the soldier's head. Now comb your hair. She offered them an encouraging wink. It was something she rarely did. But there was something about this kid that reminded Hana of her own mission. As she watched them turn the corner, she placed her hand against her chest, feeling the cool, flat metal of her military tag press against her skin. She didn't have a choice coming here, but she was able to make the decision now. She was going to bring every single one of her soldiers home. You're listening to The Vela Salvation by Maura Milan, starring Robin Miles. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Vela Salvation is written by Ashley Poston, Maura Milan, Nicole Givens-Kurtz, and Sangu Mandana. It is produced by Rhoda Bilyeza and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.